uh, <laughs> I, I was talking to one of my friends yesterday, and uh, she was like, "Last episode was really good," and I was like, "Yeah, I was really, I was really happy with like the emoji section," and she was like, uh, have, "Haven't actually gotten to that part yet, but the rest of it's really, <laughs> <laughs> it's really good." <laughs> I was like, "Yeah, no, that's that's what I thought you meant. You were talking about." Well, please thank her for. Uh, support for listening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, sure. Yeah, fucking. Did she get to sure, your yeah. section? And was like, you know what? I hear enough of this man's voice. I'm just not gonna listen anymore. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Let's Learn Everything, the show where we learn anything and everything interesting. Today. We're going to learn about a big science topic. We're going to answer a science question. Then we're going to learn about a miscellaneous topic. My name's Tom, and today's main science topic is something I have spent so much time reading both sides on, diving into the weeds, questioning my beliefs, but I think I've finally put it all together. Today's main science topic is the replication crisis. Oh. Are you are you familiar with this? No. I'm very, very familiar with this too. More specifically, I wanted to title this, There's Not Not a Replication Crisis, because we're going to go into the, the nuances of, of why it's scary and then maybe why it's not so scary. Yeah. My name is Ella, and today's question topic is, oh, I forgot what it was, how, how many... How many senses do... Humans have. <gasps> oh, I have thoughts and feelings about this. Oh, I love yeah. it. Oh, exciting. This is going to be, oh, we're going to fight about this. <laughs> My name is Caroline. And for this episode's miscellaneous topic, we are going to talk about how we got some of the pride flags that we currently use. <gasps> oh! We're going to talk about the history. We're going to talk about some more common ones, some less common ones. It's going to be uh, a really cute time. Amazing. Excellent. Rock and roll. Excellent. I want to ask, uh, what do y'all know about the replication crisis? I'll start with Caroline, because it sounds like Ella, Ella might know. I feel like this is something that I probably know more than I think I know about. Right now, mm -hmm. I feel like I don't know anything about it. So... <laughs> <laughs> We can only go up from here, right? Ella, I'm curious if you know this more from like a medical science perspective than from a psychology perspective. It's in only a medical science perspective, I know. Oh, okay. From... Oh, amazing then. Okay, because I'm going to cover primarily the psychology side of this, oh, so this should be great. Great. Um, well, okay, so what I can tell you is that it's been an issue for a long time, mm -hmm. in, but a growing issue here. And back in 2021, some results were published by a journal called eLife. They had something called the Reproducibility Project, which was specifically mm -hmm. for cancer research. Mm -hmm. And um, it, they did it over eight years. They tried to reproduce cancer studies that had been published. I can't remember how many, but they found that like fewer than half could be reproduced outside of the original lab. And there are lots of different reasons for this, it seems. And a lot of it comes down to like transparency mm -hmm. and individual differences between labs and yeah. maybe more nefarious reasons like mm -hmm. falsified data because of the need to publish a result so you can get more funding to carry on, that kind of yeah. thing. And the conference I went to, to be fair, it wasn't about reproducibility, although a lot of it did centre around that. It was about open research and how like open, yeah, yeah. and having like open publication platforms can be a really good way to kind of address this issue oh, yeah. because then you are encouraging people to post negative and failed results and also repeated results. 
so there we go there is my like very condensed summary of that yeah that was so useful so basically this whole topic is talking about the reproducibility of various scientific results papers etc and from a medical point of view or a psychology so i guess is that there's going to be talking about like human studies and things like that yeah, as well I, I, I don't know this is this has never happened to me before there's nothing better than like having a whole topic prepared and then one of you explaining it to the other and the other explaining it back i'm like oh we're all learning i haven't even started and we're already learning this is, oh, this is so exciting it's actually exciting for me ella because i sort of like found that study that you were talking about and i was like i don't need to go into this it's like medical and so i, I got to learn about it anyway which is great nice I'm very excited, not to say that I wouldn't have been excited anyway, but I'm more excited now that I know something I don't know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, Ella, there's going to be, there's going to be one study that I'm so, it's one of the spiciest psychology stories in like the last 20 years. I can totally believe that psychology is oh, the I'm worst Oh, I'm so excited to show you this. Some of this. Oh okay, my God, so, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so for those who don't know, the replication crisis is a phenomena that, as I know it, has primarily affected the social and psychological sciences. And uh, to Alice's point, also some areas of medical science as well. All, all areas of medical science. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you can argue this, this affects all science in general. It is like yeah. scientific practices. But um, where I'm familiar with it from is some of the waves it has caused, specifically in like the social psychology sciences. Yeah. And it's the idea that a surprising number of studies have been found to not be replicable, like their effects can't be reproduced, which kind of makes them sound like they aren't, because that's the, the point of, a, of a, an effect is to be able to reproduce it. But anecdotally, there's been a few psychology experiments you may have heard about that have not stood the test of time. Uh, the Stanford prison experiment, right? The, the fact that the Stanford prison experiment is still taught in some psych classes is, is frankly embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, I got taught it's it. just absolutely I was, yeah. I was taught it too. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's, we don't have time to get into it, but you know, <laughs> it's a non-random sampling. Like it was an ad that obviously selected for certain things. Later, like so many participants reported that they were just acting it up for the experiment. So many things, so many things. It wasn't even an experiment really. And, it, and I'm just so mad. Okay, I'm going to put that aside. Um, but even, even more established concepts like uh, priming in psychology have been in contention as to their effectiveness. That's sort of the idea that like, if you like say a word before you have to like make a decision, it can like subtly influence your cues about what you'll do. I, I we don't have time to get into that, but but where this starts to turn from like anecdotes into a crisis is the growing number of meta analyses that look into replicability. Mm -hmm. Probably the most famous example of a meta reproducibility study in psychology was done by the Center for Open Science in 2015 in a paper titled estimating the reproducibility of psychological science and it caused waves basically what they did was they got 270 researchers to replicate 100 experiments from psychology journals that had been published the previous year and as they report quote 97 percent of the original studies had significant results 36 percent of replications had significant results <gasps> oh nice. wow okay and this caused ripples in other sciences as well Shortly after this paper was published, Nature did a survey of 1,500 scientists across disciplines, and 52% said that they believe there is a significant reproducibility crisis, and 38% said that there was just a slight crisis. Like you said, Ella, cancer research especially has come under a lot of scrutiny, just like given the nature of the field, I think, mm -hmm. also. I do want to say, and this is a weird thing to say, defense of, of cancer research no, yeah. like this is like... 
especially when it comes to like drug trials being reproducible totally, and that totally. kind of thing it's like cancer is very individualistic like it really is yeah. like yeah. that's what I meant I didn't mean to say it was the fault I meant more with the nature of cancer research that like it is no 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 both. I completely yeah oh, no sorry I didn't even think you were slandering the research or anything <laughs> it is still an issue and one that people some people choose to ignore for me you know majoring in cognitive science in undergrad and this sort of like happening around a similar time uh, this ripple in psychology has been sort of like the epicenter of the crisis for me and it's what i'm most familiar with so i thought i would break it down mm. for y'all so first thing i want to ask is what could be causing this why are so many studies not able to be replicated i'm sure you two can name a few i'm gonna give i'm gonna give carolina again i'm sorry i'm gonna be picking on you today during this <laughs> class because i mean I feel like you've mentioned so many already, things like studies not being unbiased, people. There's mm -hmm. this like whole thing about people will, if they know they're being studied for whatever oh, reason, yeah. they will change their behavior yep. to try and either appease the psychologist or to do what they think is the correct thing that should be done rather than what they might actually do in that scenario. But yeah, all sorts of stuff can influence it. Yeah. That's called the observer expectancy effect. Uh, self-reporting can be an issue. Ooh, in, yes. With psychology studies, self-reporting must be an especially oh, yeah. bad yeah. issue because it's a lot yeah. of feeling-based things and not physical symptoms a lot of the time. Yeah controls that are not maybe things aren't adequately controlled for you guys are definitely covering especially like a lot of like specific things and and things that i feel like we've we've all seen like the tricks before or or been burned by yeah um i really like the way psychologist dorothy bishop sort of like grouped these together um into these four sort of like more systemic issues less than like specific tricks um she wrote in nature about quote what I refer to as the four horsemen of the reproducibility apocalypse. <laughs> and she goes, publication bias, low statistical power, famine, and death. Sorry. Uh, uh, awful, no, Tom. Okay. Awful, Tom. <laughs> publication bias, low statistical power, p-value hacking, and harking. Have you guys heard of the phrase p-hacking? Yeah, so... You know what? I have, and I just don't. I just don't think that I will explain it very well. Actually, that's a bit of a mood. <laughs> well, that's that's one of the things that we're going to talk about. Is sort of like how some of this has broached the broader. Like, I didn't realize p hacking has an urban dictionary definition. Does it? Like, that's how much this this like crisis has like broken into the wider world. And what would say them again? Will you? So we're going to go through each one, and then I'm going to talk about an absolutely wild case of p hacking and harking. Um, so they are publication bias, low statistical power, mm -hmm. p value hacking, and harking. Can we guess each one of them? <laughs> I mean, yeah. So first, we're going to talk about publication bias. Okay, is this like what I said about the cancer research papers, which is that papers with positive results are more likely to oh, be yeah. published? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So as Bishop put it, quote. Researchers are less likely to write up studies that show no effect, and journal editors are less likely to accept them. Consequently, no one can learn from them, and researchers waste time and resources on repeating experiments redundantly. Caroline, this is you seem... actually a really big issue in the world of conservation as well, where sure, people will yeah. put effort into various conservation work, and then it just won't get published because it didn't. Yep. their conservation effort didn't work, and then you can't access that research that's so interesting yeah 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 and, and i'm i'm yeah it's so cool to to 
Uh, no, sucks to hear. It would have been great if you were like, I'm doing conservation this long. It's really the case in all, literally all areas of science. Whole field. Yeah. It's yeah. just like, that's just how it is. Some people may have heard the, the term the file drawer effect is also what this is known as. Basically that papers that don't show something new and, and, and flashy are filed away in a drawer for no one to see. Yeah. Bishop goes on to say that experiments that don't prove something new are often called failed experiments which I'm sure we're all guilty of having thought before, like, oh, I wanted to do something I hoped and I messed up. But if an experiment is done correctly, even if it doesn't like show what you wanted, it's still providing evidence and yeah. more evidence is never a bad thing. It's just not necessarily newsworthy, which is not what most yeah. journals would want mm -hmm. necessarily. I think to add context for people who have never been in like a research environment mm, mm. when you are conducting research or you get for your funding from like charities from government bodies whatever and when you apply for the grants for them the grants that get chosen are typically ones that have like publications in high impact factor journals which are ones that are more referenced mm -hmm. and high impact factor journals you know nature cell they take papers with exciting new results and positive results it's a real like it's like an it's endemic amongst like all sciences that there's just no yeah. reward for publishing negative or nothing data, you know? Yep. Yeah. I actually when I was doing my dissertation in my undergrad, I had like two kind of chunks of it. One part my experiment didn't work. It just didn't it didn't produce I said didn't work. I'm doing it. It didn't right, produce yeah, any exactly. um, yeah. it didn't show the results I wanted it to, and one part did. Yeah. And then I went on to publish it in a student journal and they turned around the people who were putting the journal together and they were like, Oh, if you could just focus on the part of it that worked, because that's the stuff that's gonna be really interesting to the readers. And I was like, Yes, of course I could just focus on the stuff that worked. Of course, like make me look amazing. Um so yeah, this is like right down from undergrad level, it happens. I really gotta say, I, I shouldn't have been surprised. I'm both like glad that this is cathartic for everyone, but also like, I don't know, in my head, I was like, it would be, have been so funny to be talking about this and you guys be like, oh my God, that's so interesting that this, <laughs> the psychological sciences are like that. It's never, has anything like this if, for if me. If anything, it, it uh, surprises me less because it's a, yeah. because it's a such a deeply personal field i suppose oh, no it's it's the 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 complexities of human behavior right like it's really i suspect that things like physics and chemistry have like the least incidence of this kind of issue sure, sure, sure. for example and also what i what i was saying before about that people are trying to like combat this are you going to get into this later because i can talk about it later yeah exactly so so we're, we're gonna we're gonna do some doom and gloom and then we're gonna do some okay perfect so just talked about something ella mentioned i think it's good to incentivize new newsworthy research you know but that's not the same goal as incentivizing good science. They're like yeah. similar goals, but they're misaligned. Um, as cognitive science professor Paul Smaldino put it, over time, the most successful people will be those who can best exploit the system. Damn. Gotta say, this horseman kind of sounds a bit like another horseman I know of, which is capitalism. <laughs> like, well. I kind of... <laughs> Caroline took a sip and almost... I was just like, that got me. So here's, here's the thing. I've made TikToks about this before. The scientific publication industry is like one yeah. of the most profitable capitalistic industries oh, in the world their, yeah. their profit margins are higher than the music industry it's in, it's insane so they're so incentivized to get this to yeah. do it this way that it's really hard to change the 
the culture. Yeah. I gotta say, so many of these papers I read were like one step away from being like, and so we should dismantle capital. Like, like they're, they're like, <laughs> and I understand they they can't make that jump, but I will for them. We should that that is. I think if yeah. we if we Scooby Doo mm -hmm, like take the mm -hmm. mask off this horseman, it's gonna be like capitalism. But yeah. anyway, anyway, <laughs> the second horseman uh, is one I think we've mentioned a few times before. It's low statistical power. This is the idea that like small sample sizes, depending on the kind of analysis you're doing, don't have enough statistical power to really say anything. I see this as less of an issue than it's maybe being presented here, because mm, as long mm. as you are clear about like this is one thing that you can just yeah, say, sure. we appreciate I agree on this, yeah. that we don't this is a small sample size and it would need to be confirmed on more people. That is like another dissentive from publishing results, right? If you're saying yes, don't right. publish this because there aren't enough people, the point is that someone can then go and if it's not reproducible with more people, it's not. I don't think that's an yeah. issue. I agree. I agree 100%. Especially when it comes to like certain studies, like, you know, rare medical conditions, like you, you, you actually yeah. can't do like super large mm -hmm. sample sizes, but it's something that you have to factor in when you're talking about and like weighing the results and you know i will say i think this is also something that that people have become more media literate about these days but the last two horsemen are p hacking and harking which go sort of hand in hand so i don't know what harking is i've never heard that no i've never before, heard and i'm interested to hear it it's a great acronym my guess on p hacking based on context it would be that it's using the wrong statistical test to get a significant p value like 0 0.05 or, or less right something like that yeah that's it i'm gonna i'm gonna explain some context about uh what a p value is for people who don't know so the the p and p hacking comes from the p value in a statistical analysis of a study p stands for probability and basically whenever you hear someone say something is statistically significant that's usually what they're talking about the the p value for the experiment it's basically the probability that the effects that happened wouldn't have happened ordinarily, like that there was an effect. Basically, p-hacking is when you recalculate, reanalyze, reshape the data until you can get that like good, good p-value number to be statistically significant. Usually the threshold is you want to get it less than 0.05 or less than a 5% chance. I remember my dissertation supervisor referring to me finding lots of different p-values as just throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what's stuck <laughs> in terms of getting a p-value below 0.05. Yeah. Uh, and that's, yeah, that's how I imagine this. <laughs> One yeah. of my PhD supervisors was really strict about this, yeah, about yeah. what yeah. p-values to use and th that people understanding statistical values properly and using the right yeah. tests. There was a, a survey I saw that was like a good percentage of scientists aren't able to like properly define the p-value, like what it like literally is. Because it's, it's, and we can't go into this, this is a whole thing, but like the, the statistics of it all are much more complicated than just getting a single number that is good or bad. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and, and unfortunately, that's what that goal becomes. Like you just want to do whatever you can to make that p-value be something that is like a good number, which is so... Uh, but yeah, sorry, Ella, you were saying about your research advisor. I had I had one PhD, I had one PhD supervisor who was really strict about statistical tests and things, mm -hmm. and scientists knowing what their test did and why you use yeah. them. But actually, he's a huge proponent for just not using it at all. And this is like a huge oh. growing movement Ooh. in science. Uh, wow, he he believes, and it's not just it's not just him. Um, but lots of scientists now are growing to think that statistical significance is not useful anymore in this way. Ooh, Ooh. interesting. Um, there's like, I read this 
paper on it. It's like a big open letter. I can't remember a lot about it now, but it was it's very interesting yeah. that there seems to be like a movement against using it because it's so misused or misunderstood until yeah. training yeah. surrounding it is much, much better at least. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's super interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I haven't gotten to anything as, as sort of like extreme as that, but I, I think that is... If you can find that, please please throw that in the show notes. I'd be very yeah, do you remember what stuff. they were using in place of the statistical testing? Just just the data? I think it's just the data. I think it's just the <laughs> yeah. data. That's that rules. I think there is some value to being able to like abstract some of the but, I think but of course the point actually was is stop saying things are statistically significant. Yeah. Mm. If something is different or it's not, and then you can use other parameters to interpret whether or not that difference mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. useful. So like the um, standard deviation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that yeah. kind that of thing. Yeah. So using lots of different parameters to see mm -hmm. if, if that difference yeah. is... Because often the statistical significance, maybe someone's going to disagree with me here, but sometimes you can see there is a difference and you know there is a difference, but because of something, some quirk mm. of the experiment, you're, it's not statistically significant. And it's, but that doesn't mean mm. that there isn't something there, but you've just basically signed away that entire experiment because of something that isn't because of one, one single parameter yes, exactly yeah. yeah it doesn't make that much sense so harking which is the last horseman sort of goes hand in hand with p hacking uh it is an acronym that stands for hypothesizing after the results are known oh that's so cheeky yeah. is that is that that bad well i i think that there's, there's no better way to illustrate these two working hand in hand than one of the wildest social psychology stories. I remember this unraveling in 2016, and I am so excited that you two probably don't know this. So to set the scene, Brian Wansink is a researcher who did a ton of work on the psychology of consumerism and nutrition. Many papers like fattening fasting, hungry grocery shoppers buy more calories, not more food, uh, and super bowls, serving bowl size and food consumption. You've, you've, you've probably run into uh, a paper quoting it or utilizing it or putting it in a headline. He's also written a lot of books and has been cited a lot too. Researcher Yoni Friedhoff told Ars Technica, quote, all of us who are in this sort of field use and refer to Brian's work all the time. Like, this is the research you find in, like, Freakonomics and stuff like that. You know, all the, like, quippy, like, if you put your food on the left side of the bowl, studies find that people eat less with their right hand. And, you know, those kinds of experiments that were, or studies that I'm sure you've heard of. And so, on a sunny day in 2016, Brian decided to write up a blog post titled, The Grad Student Who Never Said No. And... Brian's first of many crimes is that this blog post reads like one of those Facebook stories where it's like, and then everyone stood up and clapped and the <laughs> okay. professor was Einstein. I'm, <laughs> I'm not kidding. At the end of this, he literally says, quote, Facebook, Twitter, Game of Thrones, Starbucks, spinning classes. Time management is tough when there's so many other shiny alternatives that are more inviting than writing the background section or doing the analysis for a paper. Nice. Ew. <laughs> Seems like a dick, honestly. <laughs> so that's bad enough as it is. But so he wrote this big condescending essay to teach us all a lesson and then accidentally admitted to gross harking and p-hacking. <gasps> Truly Ooh. one of science's biggest unforced errors it's like you were telling the story of the tortoise and the hare and you accidentally slipped in that the tortoise helped you commit tax evasion <laughs> it's so it's so great um so 
He tells the story of two PhD students, a lazy researcher and the titular researcher who never said no. And as he describes, he gave the latter, quote, a data set of a self-funded failed study which had no results. Right off the bat, like we just said, no results and failure are not the same thing. Caroline's faces are so... <laughs> I'm so, like, oh, so sad oh, and disgusted. So bad. <laughs> he goes on. It was a one-month study in an all-you-can-eat Italian restaurant buffet where we had charged some people half as much as others. I said, this cost us a lot of time and our own money to collect. There's got to be something here we can salvage because it's a cool data set. Every day, she came back with puzzling new results, and every day we would scratch our heads, ask why, and come up with another way to reanalyze the data with yet another set of plausible hypotheses. Right. Now, some people listening are aghast at this methodology, but I'm sure a lot of our listeners might be thinking, like, Wait, I don't get what's so bad about this. And what's going on, and this is sort of the reason why harking and p-hacking can be a problem, is, like, let's say I survey a thousand people and ask them two questions. I ask, What's your height? And do you listen to the podcast? Let's learn everything. If a significant number of tall people say they do listen, then you could establish some kind of like correlation there. Maybe listening to the podcast makes you taller or maybe tall people like listening to good podcasts. But let's say instead you survey a thousand people and you ask them a thousand questions. How tall are you? What color are your eyes? Do you think Tom's jokes are funny? Do you listen to just the zoo of us? You just question after question after question because there are so many variables it's actually unlikely that you wouldn't find a correlation just by sheer chance right yeah if, if you think back to like the randomness episode if you flipped a thousand coins it'd be more unlikely not to get a lot of heads in a row mm -hmm. and this is what they were doing in their study basically so if you found that tall people listen to let's learn everything that way that would be harking, right? You're drawing the target around where the arrows happen to land. Okay, I understand. I think I said before what, yeah. what seems so bad about that. I guess in this context, that is not great. But I think in some context, like... I No, sure. It, you know, when you have, for example... I was, I was thinking about it from my background perspective, right? I'd get huge data sets full of, like, millions of points of genetic code, right? And mm -hmm. a lot of people use that kind of data to fish. Yeah. They'll find a hypothesis based on the data they see, which are not yeah. there. Does that make sense? I, I think, and especially when the number of parameters in your sense range, because like in this experiment, because it's psychology, it can range from like gender to height to ethnicity to and and when your variables are like that uh, right. wide ranging and then you know because it's, it's a buffet study so it's like what are you picking to eat it's like you can be like computer like do a subset of first generation americans who are male that are under six feet tall who got pizza and it's like you have to be like have an any idea beforehand of like if you want to study gender that's fine but like do that okay, first okay, instead fine, of being fine, like fine. yeah fine yeah, i'm yeah. thinking more like there's a disease and you do an rna sequencing on them and then you look for yes you have no idea what gene might come up but you look for some hits sure, 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 and sure, then sure. yeah kind yeah. of build yeah. from there okay fine i see in psychology <laughs> how this would be i'm sure there are yeah, yeah yeah i'm sure you could probably find examples of bad harking harking yeah. um in biological sciences but I'm, i think i was just coming in it from the wrong perspective i understand now thanks tom yeah it, it, <laughs> I, I i i love being able to hear that perspective because for me it's all i can all i can see all these 
red flags for this, but that's my own context for this. I will say my favorite website that shows the ridiculousness of this is called Spurious Correlations by Tyler Vigan. Have either of you guys seen this website? No. What he did was he collected a bunch of data trends over time and he found which ones lined up. So for example, uh, he found that divorce rates in Maine correlate to the per capita consumption of margarine in the United States. <laughs> My favorite is there is a correlation between the number of letters in the winning word for the national spelling bee. Uh, and that correlates with the number of people killed by venomous spiders. Oh, cool. All right. It's fun. Yeah. You know, that, that huh. makes sense. That, obviously, <laughs> we can all see that there. Uh, but that, that just sh shows like when you throw enough at the wall what you can conclude. And so Wansink finishes this article off by being like, this PhD student ended up publishing so many papers and this other one was lazy and eventually left academia. And after he posted it, uh, slowly people started to be like, hey, uh, Brian, uh, what the fuck? Uh, the, first, <laughs> the first comment the blog post read, quote, Brian, is this a tongue-in-cheek satire of the academic process, or are you serious? Oh, no. <laughs> no. And so this post gets shared with computational biologist Jordan Anaya, who said, quote, The entire post was so unbelievable, I just wanted to see what the papers looked like and how carefully they were done. So he teamed up with PhD student Nick Brown and researcher Tim Vanderzee from the Netherlands, and the three of them put out an analysis of some of Brian's papers titled Statistical Heartburn, an attempt to digest four pizza publications from the Cornell Food and Brand Lab. <sighs> it is a stellar paper. Oh. And in those four papers that they analyzed, they found 150 inconsistencies. Oh. And th this is not just, not just p-hacking and harking, but like math that just didn't check out. And also, this is my favorite, is added degrees of significance just to make numbers look better. <gasps> it is fully indefensible manipulation of data. It's really mm. bad. If you're curious about this drama, uh, the podcast Maintenance Phase does a deep dive into Brian Wansink's Fall from Grace. But as another researcher would later describe Wansink's work, quote... <laughs> I think that watching a season's worth of episodes of Game of Thrones is more valuable than writing a paper such as this. Jeez. Which is a, a burn of a callback to when he was like, Damn. everyone just wants to watch Game of Thrones. And he's like, that, that's better than making bad research. Yeah. I mean, that's fair enough. <laughs> yeah. In the end, Cornell found him guilty of scientific misconduct and he had 13 papers retracted. But the real concern is, you know, how many other experiments could be like this. Uh, mm -hmm. As researcher Andrew Gelman and Eric Loken put it, when it comes to p-hacking, quote, it's almost impossible to avoid. And so hearing all of this sounds bleak. Some people might feel like washing their hands of social psychology entirely. But what if I told you I just did some p-hacking of my own? Whoa. Because I... <laughs> All right, I'll be able to pump that up in post, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> because I manipulated the data I showed you to make this seem a bit more dire than it actually is. Uh, and I think a lot of people, when they talk about the replication crisis, leave that out too. So let's put the nuance back in science. You're nailing don't, it, don't sweetie. Think about it too much. You're nailing don't, don't it, think about sweetie. It. Don't think <laughs> Doing so good. <laughs> Do you remember the study I mentioned at the start of this that tried to replicate 100 psychology experiments? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I purposely made failure to replicate sort of sound like the end of the world. But, you know, just like how we know that not 
getting the result you want isn't a failed experiment. Like failure to replicate is not the same thing as disproving something. Mm -hmm. You know, it can mean that the way they replicated it wasn't close enough to the original study. It can mean the effect is there, but not as strong. It can lead to an interesting follow-up study. Like why did my experiment work and not yours? And, you know, we can't say for certain what's the case for each of these studies, but we actually can say a lot more than usual because I've heard about the study. I didn't know this. The data behind all 100 replications is hosted online because it was conducted by the Center for Open Science. You can find like detailed reports about all 100 replications. If I was a long form YouTuber, I would absolutely do a video where I was like, I read through all 100 replications. <laughs> I, I, I wish I had the time to do that because it, it's all there. I'm sh I, I think you overestimate the kind of interest that would get on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> this is this would go off on psychology twitter from 2016 do it from, if you do it from more of a mr beast perspective and say i made ten thousand people do a hundred psychology experiments or else they die yeah uh that's what he does right yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. nailed it famously uh but the point is at the end of the day a replication adds more data and even if it conflicts at first with enough data there is going to be consensus right like what makes the argument for climate change so convincing isn't one paper it's the resounding consensus of papers and these replications are, are a step or a step towards that like it's a good thing that this study happened and another thing i left out is that a lot of the researchers whose papers couldn't be replicated feel the same way as a report in science said quote many of the original authors are praising the replications as a useful addition to their own research this is how science works, said Joshua Coral, a psychologist at the University of Colorado Boulder, and one of the authors whose results could not be replicated. How else can we converge on the truth? Yeah, that's really nice. Handled with such gray. Oh. Really, the surprising thing is that this kind of systematic attempt at replication is not more common. Yeah, it's actually a really Ooh, good thing they're doing yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. I want to say on this, I feel like here is where things diverge for a biological science versus psychology, mm, mm, mm. where psychology is testing or trying to learn things about very variable individuals. Mm. Things like cancer research, where you're like trying to develop a single drug that might be used on thousands of individuals. You have mm, to be mm, mm. if your paper is being published and says this works. That's a good point. It yes, has right. to work. It has to be true. Yeah. yeah. And you yeah. have to assume there is a level of reproducibility there before it gets That's taken a great any point. further. That's a great point. Yeah. So the the reproducibility crisis in biological research is I agree that there is a level of it's okay if not all of this is reproducible. Yeah. But a lot of the times it's like that there, there is an actual issue where Yeah, that's a great point. It's concerning that not more is reproducible. Yeah. The next thing I mislaid you about uh, was that last quote about p-hacking being impossible to avoid. What they meant wasn't that there are like a million Brian Wansinks out there who are doing like capital P, capital H p-hacking. In fact, I learned some of the people who originally popularized the word p-hacking actually regret it. Those two researchers that I quoted earlier, um, Andrew Gelman and Eric Loken said, quote, we regret the spread of the term phishing and p-hacking. People say p-hacking and it sounds like someone's cheating. The flip side is that people know they didn't cheat, so they don't think they did anything wrong. People in power don't understand the inevitability of p-hacking in the absence of safeguards against it. They think p-hacking is something that evil people do, and since we're not evil, we don't have to worry about it. And that quote I said before was, it's almost impossible to avoid, but the full sentence was, 
without safeguards in place, it's almost impossible to avoid. So let's talk about those safeguards to finish this out. I started this topic introducing like the big scary problems and then we've sort of like nuanced them to shrink them down a bit and contextualize them. So now let's talk about fixing what we have left. Uh, what can we do to improve this process of science? And the answer is obviously a D.A.R.E. program, but for science. Uh, do you guys know what D.A.R.E. is? Yes, yeah, the drug awareness program, right? But that, met, that actually, sh well, correlation isn't causation, <laughs> but correlated with a huge increase in drugs being taken yeah, by kind of. young people in America. No, but we'll, we'll do it differently. It's going to be like, we'll have like a, a dog mascot with a skateboard and like sunglasses and it'll be like, hey kids, pee hacking is totally uncool. Oh my god, that was so much commitment to that one, Tom. <laughs> Real scientists get a significant sample size. Tom's doing like the arm movements to go with this just to there's, let you yeah, know. Yeah, I'm going to flip my, flip my cap over and like sit oh, backwards in my so chair. There's so much happening right now. <laughs> um, no, uh, actually, just a quick side note, as Ella said, uh, speaking of consensus, a consensus of studies have shown that D.A.R.E. actually doesn't work. But anyway, inst instead, uh, Gelman and Loken actually mention a safeguard when they said that p-hacking is, quote, something that every single person will do that I continue to do when I don't pre-register my studies. And I, I know pre-registering has more of a history in pharmaceutical sciences, but pre-registering in psychology is one of the biggest positive trends of the replication crisis. And what pre-registration is, is basically laying out your hypotheses and analysis and submitting it before you conduct the experiment. It's like uploading a time-stamped document of you calling your shot so that you can't go back on it. And like I said, this, is, this has already been the case for, for clinical medical research since like the early 2000s, but the open science framework started to broaden this for other sciences when it launched its pre-registration database in 2012. It's now one of the largest. The next year in 2013, the journal Cortex was the first to start accepting pre-registration reports. And by 2018, the number of journals that accept pre-registration has jumped to 120. Nice. So it's a fast-growing trend. And because it's now so many, that means we have enough data to do a meta-analysis on pre-registrations, which is a fucking amazing sentence. I'm sure scientists 30 years ago would have, would have killed to hear that. Yeah. So according to Nature, Chris Allen and David Meller identified, quote, 296 discrete hypotheses across those pre-registered studies and found that overall, 61% of these were not supported by the results that those studies later published. So basically, 61% of them were null hypotheses that normally would have been filed under the drawer, but now are made available for other people to like actually fucking read, you know, uh, which is a huge improvement in the, that publication bias horse. And, you know, this is obviously something that's still evolving. As Shiel went on to say, there are so many unknowns at the moment, but that also makes it a very exciting time for meta scientists. As Nature reported later, quote, the number of registered reports is growing exponentially. And Alan now hopes to conduct another study with a larger sample size to answer some of the questions the research has raised. And he plans to register that first. <laughs> it's just like pre-registering a meta-analysis on pre-registration is just like, oh, that's I wild. Love, love that, that <laughs> meta-science. It's, so, it's just so cool. Um, so for our last safeguard, we're going to revisit Wansink's work because I actually left something out of that as well. It turns out he actually... Um, Surely I left something out. Uh, no, actually, that was just a, that was just bad. Actually, what he was pretty bad. Uh, no, nothing, nothing, nothing good there. Uh, but it does highlight another important thing, which is retractions. 
you know, ideally we live in a world where the pre-registration and peer review process was perfect, but in the world we do live in, retractions are an important part of the scientific process. It's often a scary topic for journals because it's, it's like admitting your mistakes, but fortunately, uh, opinions seem to be changing for the better because the rate of retractions per new papers published has been steadily going up since the early 2000s. And data like that comes to us from another interesting development since the start of the replication crisis, which is Retraction Watch, which is both a blog and a database that tracks and catalogs every retraction from every journal that they can find. But what amazed me is how recently this came about. Uh, according to science, Hilda Bastian, who once consulted for PubMed's database, is, quote, incredulous that Oransky's and Marcus's passion project is so far the most comprehensive source of information about a key issue in scientific publishing. A database of retractions is a really serious and necessary piece of infrastructure, she says. Yeah. But the lack of long-term funding for such efforts means that infrastructure is fragile and it shouldn't be. It's kind of disappointing that tracking something like this is is a passion project sort of like emojipedia was that we talked about last episode but it's cool that it's happening at all and one thing i found super fun in their database is that it is extensive enough that their earliest retraction they have a record of is from 1756 no <laughs> uh, by benjamin wilson and to put it in the historical context it is so old that he casually name drops a still alive benjamin franklin <laughs> <laughs> which is very funny. Uh, but what's even more interesting about this retraction is it's a self-retraction. And it reads, <laughs> Gentlemen, I think it necessary to retract an opinion concerning the explication of the Leiden experiment, which I troubled the society with in the year 1746. <laughs> and what's cool is unlike Wansink's retractions, this one didn't seem to hurt Wilson's career, which you know makes you wonder if self-retractions could be like not as harmful as we might think. Fortunately, we don't have to wonder because someone did another meta-analysis on retractions. So using a different database, the Web of Science, Feng Lu et al. analyzed 14,000 retracted papers and then searched whether these authors were still being cited as often as before, you know, or if there was like a stain on their reputation. And they found that there was a dip in citations after a retraction, but they noticed that, quote, importantly, however, citation losses among prior work disappeared when authors self-reported the error. So not all retractions are death sentences. It, it, it's, a, it's a healthy part of science. And what I think is even cooler is that retractions are becoming not just popular among journals, but also content creators. Do either of you know what happened with Kurtzgazat a few years back? No. no. They're an animated science YouTube channel. Super cool. Okay. I think they have like, like 20 million subscribers. But Damn. In, okay. In 2015, Kurtzgazat made a video on drug addiction that was based on a single source that had some dispute around it. Uh, it had 19 million views, but in 2019, they deleted it and they made a video explaining why. Oh, shit. And that explanation of the re retraction has almost 7 million views itself and like half a million likes. And every comment is saying like, good on you. I think that's that's fucking cool i mean i i i agree i agree and i don't yeah. want to take away because i'm sh because i'm sure it was very it's very difficult for them to do and not be sure mm -hmm. what the outcome would be but like this is like the bare minimum we should be holding science content creators to sure, like sure, the sure. absolute bare minimum <laughs> you know it, it, it's not my excitement comes not from them doing it but the fact that everyone 
seems to agree with it. Like everyone's like, this is good. I still like your channel as opposed to being like upset. Yeah. The, the, the positive reaction from everyone else it excites me more than them doing it. You know, to, to, to bring this all to a close, I think when a lot of people talk about the replication crisis, there's this fear that like talking about it will weaken people's confidence in the scientific method. But all of these faults and improvements are what the progress of science actually is, right? Like, and what's the alternative? The alternative is is doing things without evidence, like continuing the D.A.R.E. program in spite of showing <laughs> evidence that it doesn't work. And I think talking about it like Kurtzgazak did, where they, they made a whole video just talking about, like, their thought process and why they think it's important. And talking about it like we're doing here can turn a crisis or a mistake into a really powerful lesson. As Andrea Woodell said for the American Psychological Association before... I introduced research methods, but the process quickly became an afterthought as we moved through the content and supporting studies. Now, scientific literacy is at the forefront, and the replication crisis provides a means to scaffold teachable moments throughout the term. I really hope that psychology classes and textbooks will start to focus like less on the results of the study and more on their methods right and like how it's done that's a that is such a good point like teaching the background teaching people how to do statistical analysis god damn mm -hmm. <laughs> you know yeah and teaching people that like a null hypothesis doesn't mean failure yeah you know not, yeah. not replicating doesn't mean disproving and a self-retraction doesn't mean the end of the world like to be clear there are many issues in scientific analysis but they're nuanced and there are also many things that we can do to try and improve it if there's four horsemen of the replication apocalypse, then they've brought with them four horses that can help avert it. You've got consensus and meta-analysis, retractions, pre-registering, and the last horse is dismantling capitalism. Uh -huh. <laughs> we, we didn't get to talk Yay. about that much, but that's there's a few moments in this where, where that would have been really handy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, There are more good horsemen. Open research, open publishing yeah. is yeah. like yeah. such a huge and important part totally. of 100%. battling this. So this, for anyone who doesn't know, most publications are behind a paywall, but now more and more journals are opening it up to that it's free to read. Yeah. Part of what comes with that is that they are more willing to have negative results, if that's what you want to call them, or, you know, no yeah. results. Uh, and also there are some journals which solely will just take those kinds of results. Yeah. Oh, really? There are, especially in the world of conservation, like I was yeah. talking about earlier, like if something doesn't work, it doesn't get published. There are whole journals that get published yearly talking about like case studies where conservation efforts didn't work, stuff that usually wouldn't get published. And I don't know so much about in the social sciences but outside of that pre-printing has become a really yeah. huge yeah of yeah. all of this a lot of this is about just generally tackling the publication industry but it, that goes hand in hand with totally um, reproducibility so you can basically publish your results online when they've not been peer-reviewed the idea here is that everyone knows that they've not been peer-reviewed but they mm -hmm, can give mm -hmm. their feedback and analysis on it so you can go away and improve the data before you do send it off for publishing which is incredible Oh, well, I think it is. Yeah, yeah, it's great. And also, one last thing, um, a bunch of funding bodies have gotten together and made this agreement. It's called like the San Francisco something agreement. And mm -hmm. they basically, they basically said, we will not judge people's grant applications based on the impact factor of any of the journals they've published in, which means that they've disincentivized oh, yeah. people reaching for very high impact factor journals and they're incentivizing people going for 
incremental yeah. improvements and and negative results. It's it's such a whole big process, and there's so much room for change, like at every single step. And at yeah. some of yeah. it is happening. It's really it's really cool. There's so much stuff. Maybe in ten years' time, it'll it'll something else will happen, and it'll all yeah. be yeah, it'll be even better. I'm Jordan Morris. And I'm Jesse Thorne. On Jordan Jesse Go, we make pure, delightful nonsense. We rope in awesome guests. And bring them down to our level. We got stupid with Judy Greer. My friend Molly and I call it having the space weirds. Patton Oswalt. Could I get a Balrog burger and some Aragorn fries? Thank you. And Kumail Nanjiani. I've come back with cat toothbrushes, which is impossible to use. Come get stupider with us at MaximumFun.org. Look, your podcast app's already open. Just pull it out. Give Jordan Jesse Go a try. Being smart is hard. Be dumb instead. Today, I'm going to ask you guys, very simply, how many senses do human beings have? Oh boy. So we're gonna this is a guided question. I feel like whatever <laughs> answer we give, it's gonna give like the QI, like oh, so it's... bells every time we say something. It's just this wrong. isn't a tr- it's not a trick question. I think it's a, I'm okay. sure, I'm sure. So let's just start off easy. I am also I'm really glad it's a guided question and not mm. just us saying the answer and then you saying the answer. And yeah, then we yeah. Move on. yeah, or you d- just list all of them and then we'll it's the yeah. Caroline topic. Uh, <laughs> We're just gonna start easy and go with, with our Love, the classic five. Fear. <laughs> so those are we, the same actually. We can see. Yeah, sight. We sight. can smell things. Yeah. Smell. We can taste things. Taste. Yes, we can. We can hear things. A lot of us. And and we can touch things. Yeah. Long ago, the five senses lived in harmony. Until... <laughs> Long ago. So, okay, here we go. Sight. I don't have anything to say about this. I could. You can say a lot about vision. I'm not going to. <laughs> um, but just quick fun fact. The scientific name of your right eye is Oculus Dexter, and the scientific name of your left eye is Oculus Sinister. Oculus Sinister? I know, yeah. <gasps> That's all, That's all like, so left-handed things have that, like... Yeah. Greek or Latin prefix. Uh-huh. I didn't know they had names. That's, no! that's cute. Yeah. It's Dex and Sid. Oh. <laughs> Hearing is also known as audition. Um, mm-hmm. Smell is also known as olfaction. olfaction. Taste, gustation. I'm sorry, what was that? Gustation. gustation. I mm-hmm. have never heard this word. Neither had I. Um, and touch. A tactician. Uh-huh. You can break all of these kind of first senses down into lo- into like different parts. Let's just do taste and touch, though. Can I can I say something? Or I don't know if this will be a spoiler uh, to what you're gonna say. Probably. Uh, <laughs> I, like, because some of these senses are like kind of similar mechanisms. Am I wrong? Yeah, like when you break I was them thinking down a bit, that. If you think about it too much. Um. Yeah, they all have quite similar mechanisms. Most of them are like done by like, the same neurons. Mm-hmm. Taste, taste is sort of just like super touch in a way. No, right? I was I mean, going how like okay. taste is like smelling, but with your tongue was where my brain went rather than. Mm. I guess so. <laughs> I mean, they have the same mechanisms in that almost. It's all atoms. So when you think about it, <laughs> no, almost all senses have the same mechanisms. You have a receptor, a specific receptor. Mm. Okay, yeah. okay, okay. That opens when it's triggered by that specific thing. Oh. Okay, that's a great way of defining a sense. And yeah. then that triggers something in your brain yeah. to tell right. you okay. that you okay. have smelt or tasted or whatever this. 
And okay. sometimes those things um, cross over in strange ways as well. The part of my brain that says everything is Adams is is appeased by that definitely. Yeah. That's fine. <laughs> We're not really going to get into a lot of, maybe a bit of the mechanistic stuff, but essentially, you're right, neurons have receptors in. So for example, with touch, they're called mechanoreceptors, mechanical receptors, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. you, you press, the pressure opens the receptor, ions flood in, it activates your neuron, sends a signal to your spinal cord, that sends a signal to your brain, your brain knows you've been touched. God, I've never thought about touch that much. Actually, with something like touch, it's probably more immediate, like it goes to your spinal cord, it comes straight back mm -hmm. down, right yeah. Back. Uh, yeah, because it's such an immediate reaction. But anyway. So would pain count as a different sense to touch? Yes. What? Okay. I think I'm, I think I'm getting this now. Okay. Okay. Uh, good. Oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't even mean to give you that context, but that's good that that helped. Oh. So yeah. So pain or nociception yes. is oh. yeah, yeah, yeah. is its own sense. Before we go on, before we go on, back to our classical five. Uh -huh. Um, I just want you to tell me what our primary tastes are. <laughs> oh, no, but aren't these a little bit bullshit? Um, no, not really. Oh, no. Isn't it that like that you you're meant to be able to taste different things on different parts of your tongue? Yes, that part's that's bullshit. Right. That part's bullshit. So okay. your sense of taste is not separated into distinct zones on your tongue. Yeah. Your individual taste buds will have receptors for all of your tastes on. Yeah. This is my favorite part about the question topic is like if I was Ella researching this and I came across this, I'd be like, I could list them all out or I could grill my friends for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> this is why this is. I thought this would be a good question topic because it, yeah. I can just be like, "Do tell me." Yeah, that's so. <laughs> okay, go on. Taste. Bitterness. Yep. Sweet. Yeah. Sweet. Salty. Salty. Yeah. Drinks. Sour. That. Yeah. That's Love. Five primary tastes. I know you know the umami? last one. Umami. That's the one. It's umami. Nice. Yeah. So that's savory cool. taste, like soy sauce and broths and things. Yeah. But you know, we actually have a bunch of secondary tastes, which also have their own distinct oh. response in our brain, which I didn't know about. Oh. My main thing is, you know, you say all this and still no one will buy my soy sauce warheads. <laughs> it's got all the flavors. <laughs> okay. So secondary tastes, you probably won't know these off the top of your head because I didn't. Fat taste. Okay. okay. Yeah. Metallic. Yeah. Oh, yes. Okay. Whoa. Yeah. That's just clicked something in I'm my sorry, head. I'm sorry. Are these like oh. derived from the, the previous ones or are they like... I think that they use some of the same receptors, but they have their own distinct like um, response in us. That's fascinating. Uh -huh. That's cool. It's like a subclass in D&D. &D. Yeah, exa it's exactly. It's kind of like oh. a subclass. Astringency. Ooh. Get the fuck okay. out of town. That is the dry, rough feeling in the mouth. Like when you have red wine, for example. Oh. <laughs> and this is my favorite flavor that I've learned about. Uh -huh. It's called kokumi. Kokumi. Get the fuck out of town. Um, it's described as a sensation of enhancement of sweet, salty, and umami tastes when associated with specific compounds or a mouthful, thick, delicious taste. This is that's actually oh. a, a term I got directly directly from a paper. Wow, that is funny <laughs> that they, they do have to. Someone has to study this stuff and they have to like do that. Yeah, that's really and, cool. and this paper said that there are compounds in meat that carnivores, and specifically cats, react to much more than humans, huh. um, which is why they have an increased palatability of meat. Oh, 
Fascinating. Interesting. Oh boy. We could do a topic on each of these senses. There's so much. Yeah, they you. Yeah. Really... I'm going to try and limit it to on each one because you can say a lot about uh, each yeah, one. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. With touch, very quickly, this can be broken down into three or four, but I'm taking one out because it's often considered its own. Mm-hmm. What kind of types of touch do you think there are? Temperature? Touchy? So that's the, that's the one that is considers ah, its own sense a lot of the time, nice, which is nice. also called really? um, thermo. Exception, uh-huh. which Tom, you should know, because <laughs> you talked all about <laughs> how animals regulate their body temperatures differently. Yeah, that's on and the it... inside, baby. I don't know what the fuck's going on outside. <laughs> I'm just like touching things to be like, how am I touching things differently now? Yeah, this is one of those like I feel every sense in my body very acutely. Yeah, now. yeah, yeah. Okay, I'll just tell you. Please, light touch has its own distinct receptors. Get the fuck out of town. Are you kidding me? Yeah, to firm pressure. And they are on the surface level of the skin, whereas for firm touch, they are further down in the skin, which is what makes the distinction. Oh, that makes so much sense. You know what's so interesting is that I do... This makes sense to me because when it comes to, like, robotics, what you'll often have are, like, short-range IR sensors that specialize in that and then as well as like long-range IR sensors but but what's interesting about being a human being with a consciousness is that like they're so melded together that you don't like I'm not like and then the touch ones are activated and then the light ones are just deactivated you know what I mean yeah but like that makes perfect sense like you can't have like one perfect sensor you usually have just like multiple other ones that do their own thing oh my god and also how sensitive you are to touch in different areas of your body just depends on the concentration of the neurons with those receptors Mm, in that area mm. so your like fingertips for example have like or your hands have such a huge concentration of these receptors we're all like rubbing (laughs) our fingers together (laughs) they have a huge concentration if i was high right now compared to Compared to somewhere like your upper arm, where you have like maybe one every, you know, couple of centimeters kind of thing. So that affects the way you feel. Wow. Oh, itch is also a, t- a specific oh, touch receptor. Yeah, hey. yeah. Yeah. That checks out. Wow. Now onto the lesser known sensors. So Gosh. you've already said the first is nociception, which is your sense of pain. And the receptors responsible for these uh, for relaying pain are called nociceptors, surprisingly. Mm-hmm. They're also so these receptors are found in what's called free nerve endings. So these are unspecialized branches of sensory neurons. So most of your um What? When I was reading about senses, something I saw in a lot of science articles, I even saw it in a video from ASAP Science, um, which I think is normally really good. That, that you have specialized neurons for each of your senses. It's just not true. Mm-hmm. Some of your neurons are specialized specifically for senses, like auditory neurons or olfactory, uh-huh. but a lot of them are just a generalized sensory neuron, and then they have nerve endings with lots of different receptors that do lots of things in. That's why there's like brain plasticity and stuff like that, right? When people. Basically, um, there are three types of pain that can activate receptors mechanical pain, heat, and chemical. Mm-hmm. Why, aren't, why don't we get taught this? This is so fucking cool. It is cool. <laughs> This is amazing. And the science of pain it is such a huge and interesting area. You know, you have pain thresholds. You know, does being kicked in the balls hurt more than giving birth? Really? <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually did look this up, and uh, no, basic, fart, no. <laughs> well, it's actually it's just that who knows because everyone has different pain thresholds, right? Yeah. Um, or 
maybe if you have a low pain threshold, it does hurt more to be kicked in the walls. Or as I like to say, if you're a weak ass bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Ella, did you write that in your yeah. script? Yeah. That's such a Tom move. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You have things like chronic pain, you know, this idea of these neurons aberrantly firing constantly. Um, Phantom pain, which is like more psychological in nature and referred pain. And that I'll only talk about one of these things in more detail because I find the idea of referred pain really interesting. Yeah, and I think I remember in the... The, the pain episode you you like wanted to talk a bit yeah, about but this, I, I'm glad I didn't you get yeah. to finally I think you cut it in the end because I didn't know quite how to have, speak yeah. about it um, but I know now so what is referred pain I don't know if I can define it it's like when you I don't know if I know uh, the definition when like another pain is applying for a job and you need like a reference to <laughs> <get to> <laughs> um it's like you experience pain in one spot but you feel it in another yeah exactly yeah. It, it specifically i think it more specifically refers to you have an internal pain in like your viscera your organs oh, yeah. and you feel it somewhere on your skin so everyone will know the classic example of people tend to feel that like if they have a heart attack they'll feel it in their left <gasps> oh, arm right. yeah yeah right. yeah people feel and i get this all the time diaphragm pain in their shoulders yeah Kidney, huh. kidney pain in your lower back. There are loads of examples. Mm-hmm. And there are a few theories why this occurs, but the most prominent is called the convergence projection theory, um, which is the, to do with the way your body develops early on. So in development, you're kind oh. of like this shapeless blob-like entity thing. Uh, you're made up of blocks of cells. Speak for yourself. I was beautiful. <laughs> you <were, laughs> sprung fully formed from your mother's <laughs> forehead like Athena. So you're made up of these blocks of cells called somites, which each somite will give rise to different structures in the body. Mm-hmm. And within somites, you have different areas. So and one of these is called a dermatome, and that will give rise to all of the sensory innovation to the skin mm. in a certain section of the body. But from the same somite, different parts of the body will be made, different innovation to parts of the body. Mm-hmm. And so what the theory is, is that because the sensory input from both an area of skin and somewhere else internally came from the same somite, and now both converge on the same part of the spinal cord, mm. your brain is confused about where exactly the pain is coming from when it reaches your brain. So it tells that you makes sense. You've got, you're having heart pain, it tells you it's coming from your arm because they both feed back to the same place. Yeah. 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 Anyway, I thought that was super interesting. That's super interesting. The other one you already mentioned, Caroline, is thermoception, so temperature sensation. I don't have much to say about this one. It's not sensed objectively. Um, it's relative to skin temperature, which is maintained at mm, 32 degrees Celsius. Sense. They're also in free nerve endings. And there are thermoreceptors not just in the skin, but also in the liver, skeletal muscles, and the hypothalamus. Oh. Wait, a skeleton can... <laughs> the, <laughs> the muscle around your skeleton. But you, oh, no. It kind of makes sense if you think about it. When you've it been does, exercising yeah, very intensely, uh... you can feel heat within. Yeah, it's sort of like, I, I, you know, like how like some like shitty air conditioners have like a single temperature sensor like right in front of the fan. And so it's like horrible at guessing the ambient. I would mm. rather there be like a whole bunch of them throughout my yeah. body as opposed to like one that like if it fucks up, it's like now yeah, you're hot. That's it. <laughs> you know, the, these things don't necessarily feed back into your brain and tell you to feel the heat. They tell your yeah. body, this thing is too hot, so you need to do mm-hmm. something about it. Mm-hmm. So you have cold and warm receptors. 
Um, so, for example, CMR1 is activated by the 7 to 28 degrees Celsius range, and VRL1 is activated by temperatures above 50 degrees. Ooh. And then cold receptors Again. are 3.5 times more common than heat receptors in humans. Ooh. Interesting. Because now, so cool. even more interesting is the spicy compounded chili peppers, capsaicin, can activate that 50 degree plus VRL1 receptor. That's why oh. spicy feel hot. That's why spicy Whoa. feel hot around your butt. That's why spicy feel... <laughs> I just had to overthinking about it. Actually, that's, I think that's a pain. The thing is, a lot of these things I overlap. That pain one, yeah. A lot of these things overlap, so pain and heat do overlap in a lot of ways. Yeah, of course. Interesting. If we're moving on, can I guess one of the next senses? I also have one, and I feel like we might be saying the same one now. So go on, Three, Tom. Three, two, one. Hey, you got the... Nice, you got different ones. Okay, let's start with the... Wait, are they not the same one? Am I wrong? Oh, wait, fuck, sorry. Yep, no, I, yeah, they're different. I remember now, <laughs> never mind. That's really I good. Remember. Okay, so Caroline's balance, which is called equilibrioception, um, which is your sense of balance and spatial orientation. So we've actually mentioned this on the podcast before when we were talking about tiny frogs and how they mm-hmm. don't have good equilibrioception. That's why they can't, they can't yeah. be bouncy. <laughs> no bounce. So if you Just want crawl. to hear more about that then go to episode 30 wow well i'm so amazed you knew that off the top of your head thank I you know. thank you and of course the other one that tom mentioned is proprioception um let's start with the task first okay yes okay so find an object in front of you and and just touch it a few times while looking at it and now take your hand away and close your eyes unless you're driving <laughs> <laughs> thank you can you still find the object with your hand without looking at it yeah. Yes. Okay. That's proprioception. <laughs> that, Ooh, that, that lets you do that. It's the sense of where your body is in space. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know where your limbs are now. You know what they're doing. <laughs> you know where your limbs are. It's true. That's what it is. <laughs> it's 10 p.m. Do you know where your limbs are? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's sometimes called the sixth sense. Oh, really? Despite what M. Night Shyamalan says. <laughs> what if that had been the reveal (laughs) is that that like this whole time you've been able to like that's the last scene is he closes his eyes and he picks up the pen he's like how did you do that (laughs) everyone else when they close their eyes they're just like fumbling around but only bruce willis has the sixth sense well you you say that tom (gasps) so unlike many of the senses we talked about proprioception never turns off it never becomes obscured Right. If you're ill, whoa, you know, if you're whoa. ill, you might not be able to smell or hear properly. Mm-hmm. That's a really interesting point. You can lose thermoregulation if you're if you're unwell as well. Your thresholds for pain are different, also. But proprioception, everyone has in a very similar degree, except huh. for some very rare cases, fascinating yeah. cases of people who don't have proprioception at all. <gasps> Ooh. And only okay. a few dozen of these have been identified in the world. Probably the most famous case. A few dozen. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? The most famous case is that of Ian Waterman, who was the subject of a BBC documentary called The Man Who Lost His Body. I watched it during Mm. my bachelor's degree. It's really interesting. I do recommend it. His sense of touch and proprioceptions were damaged by an infection when he was younger. Mm. So he could still move, but in order to do it, he had to look at his limbs. (gasps) Wow. Whoa. And actively think about the process. So he had to look at his legs to walk. 
Wow, that's insane. Yeah. You know what this starts to make me think about is um, VR in a bit, sort of, because I feel like that's mm. almost like the closest we can get to something like this, where you can like disconnect your your vision sense from your like movement yeah, yeah, yeah. sense. Oh, that's really interesting. Wow. Neurologist Jonathan Cole describes a loss of proprioception as a kind of limbless limbo, which I think is mm. quite apt. And scientists have actually identified a common gene mm. called Piso2 that is mutated in people who lack proprioception, which is so oh, interesting it's down to a single gene. It's, I think it's yeah, to do with the, really the like, proprioceptors. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to get into it here because of time, but there's a great long read Fox article about experiences of people with no proprioception Ooh, and then the scientists yeah. studying it in the show notes if you'd like to learn more. Nice. Yeah. So we've covered sight, hearing, smell, taste, touch, equilibrioception, proprioception, nociception, thermoception. These are all interesting. Um, <laughs> they are either they're considered their own sense category or they're what you would call an exteroceptive sense. Mm -hmm. Something which helps us perceive our external world. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. But where's this going? <laughs> we have a whole world of internal things going on and the ability to perceive them. This is called interoception. Oh. Is this like our ability love, to, love to be thirsty love. and things? Thirst, interestingly, is not one that I have down. But just take a, just take a moment, both of you. Close your eyes again. Again, not if you're driving. <laughs> <laughs> if you're operating heavy machinery, don't do that. And take a moment to think about what you can feel your body doing inside of you. Sometimes I have a grumbly stomach. That's yeah. Oh, things all the what time. is that? What is what's that called, Caroline? <laughs> hunger. Hunger. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, hunger. Oh, hunger is a sense. Oh yes, it is. Oh my god. Oh. oh. Your sense of hunger is mediated by a few things, including the hormones ghrelin and leptin, which are made by mm -hmm. your stomach. So ghrelin tells your brain when you're hungry, leptin when you're full. People with uh, the genetic disorder prada willi syndrome have their many issues, but including extreme hunger. And researchers found that they mm. produce too little leptin and too much ghrelin. Mm -hmm. So they have this um, kind of continuous hunger, which sounds horrible. Yeah. A anything else? Nope, I'm empty on the inside. <laughs> Turns <laughs> out I feel nothing. So, if, so breathe in really, really deeply. Keep going deeply, a little bit too far even. And it feels kind of uncomfortable. Yeah, can you feel bad. that in your chest? Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. That is your sense of stretch. Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. They're, they're called stretch receptors. They're mechanical receptors like touch receptors, but they are their oh own thing. Oh my gosh. Uh-huh. This is reminding me of when I first learned that like the way muscles work is like, you have one pulling oh, yeah, on one yeah. side and one pulling yeah. back on the other. It's not like a rotor. It's two different pullings. And so it, this almost feels like that where it's like stretching is its own like action. And so there's its own yeah. sense for that. But mm -hmm. Stretch receptors, they'll be activated when there is this kind of like opposite stretching force on, on either side right and that happens in your lungs but you have them a lot of places in your body you have stretch receptors mm -hmm. in your gi tract which sense a gas distension oh. so you can feel that as bloating oh, or, or fullness in your stomach as well oh that's interesting yeah fullness in your stomach when stimulation of stretch receptors happens in your blood vessels you can get a headache oh, oh. and you have stretch receptors in your skin as well so you can feel that mm. kind of 
that kind of action, but that that's sort of not internal, obviously. A few others we have here. You have something called a baroreceptor, and they're in your blood I've vessels. Baroreceptors before, yeah. They relay information about blood pressure ah, to your yeah, brain yeah. to maintain blood pressure. Mm. And you have chemoreceptors or chemical receptors, and they me- yeah. they monitor carbon dioxide and oxygen levels in the brain. So you have a sense of suffocation mm. if your carbon dioxide levels are too high. Jeez. Oh gosh, I never want to have a sense so of much. suffocation. Oh. Yeah. It's, it, you'll start to feel it if you just hold your breath too long, right? Oh, oh, okay. Again, not if you're driving. Yeah. <laughs> you have receptors called opsins in melanocytes and keratinocytes. They can sense ultraviolet radiation. No way. And they respond by increasing pigmentation or, in my case, sunburn. Uh, that's oh. what causes that. Oh, that's fun. <laughs> wow. You also have sensory receptors in the pharynx that sense foreign objects and that triggers the gag God, reflex. There's so, guys, oh. there's so many. <laughs> there are too many stuff. You know, that is quite a staggering amount of things that could go wrong inside of your body. <laughs> that yeah. I'm not going to get into. The longer we <laughs> do this podcast for, the more things I realize could go wrong at any second inside my but body. But at the same time, the more I'm grateful that all work. It all, it's all working right it's all now. Good. That's pretty great. There's <laughs> just one last one, and I've kind of left it because it's not linked to a particular sensory organ or receptor. Tom might love, be. This one's got to be love. This one's gotta be love. <laughs> so love isn't a sense, unfortunately. Um, Fuck. <laughs> but Tom, this is kind of related to maybe what you did at college. Drink monster energy. <laughs> yeah, it's the sense of drinking monster energy drinks. Wow. Eating ramen. Sense of being quite drunk. It is. It's chronoception. Oh, I like yeah. That yeah, the, the, the sense of, of the passage of time. Yeah, it's your t- <gasps> it, there you go. <laughs> oh. It's your perception of time. This encompasses like the sleep-wake cycle, hormonal changes, metabolism. Right, right. But it's also a deeply subjective sense because it is about the way you, you personally perceive time. Yeah. yeah. And like many of our other senses, it seems to diminish as we age. So a 2005 study by psychologists Mark Whitman and Sandra Lenhoff at Ludwig Maximilian University of Munich surveyed 499 participants ranging in age from 14 to 94 years. And they asked them about the pace at which they felt time moving from very slowly to very fast. Shorter periods, individuals' time perception was similar across all of the age groups. But for longer periods, like years and decades, older people perceive time as moving faster now than when they were younger. This is something called the holiday paradox. It's the idea, at least this is the leading hypothesis, that our Uh brain encodes new experiences into memory, but not familiar ones. So when you're a child or you go on holiday and are experiencing many new things, time seems to move a lot slower retrospectively as you build these new memories oh. i think i thought that was very very interesting and also like a little bit existential crisis inducing but oh, only of course, a smidge a bit. well so it's not a it's pretty bit. good yeah but there is a cure for it in a, in its way because you, you just keep doing new stuff yeah if you yeah, yeah could do new experiences then time will seem to move slower you know huh. which i think is quite, oh, quite an nice. interesting concept this is a that's a thing i i, I personally like to do which is when i either listen to a new episode of a podcast i really like or uh, an album that i'm really excited to listen to i'll like walk a different route or like i'll, I'll oh, kind of like that's such bike a, a different idea. route when i'm trying to do different things so i feel like i have like a different associations with with places and stuff like that but yeah i mean the 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 fortunate thing is that the, yeah the, the remedy seems to be like 
try new things, which which mm-hmm. feels so like like silly to be like. And then the prescription is to do all kinds of new stuff in your life. <laughs> but, I mean. Um. So we've just been through a lot of human senses. <laughs> so many. I can't. I can't believe I went into this thinking like, oh, the trick is there's actually only like three. Yeah, there's <laughs> three. Yeah. <laughs> I think. I think oh. the trick is that what you call a sense is not necessarily like limited True. and yeah people say like 22 or 23 i see that listed but i don't really see any like real evidence suggest that that is how many we have uh mm. <laughs> i've given you some and you can go back and count them but i wouldn't call that a definitive answer right. yeah and compared to some animals humans are babies stumbling blind through the world <laughs> so to close this off let's have a very quick fire round of the senses <gasps> that animals have that we don't. We have talked about many of these on the podcast yeah, before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, and this is interesting that uh, I'll just say right off the bat that naked mole rats have a sense of love. Uh, <laughs> of course they do. <laughs> Clearly said we don't, but they do. They have, they oh, have uh, love receptors. Of course they do. In their heart. Okay, go. I feel like one that I learned about recently is an ability to sense water. Yes. Like in a way that we can't. Yeah. So this yeah. is called hygroreception. It's the ability to sense moisture and humidity. Many insects have receptors which can detect this, but we don't. And researchers have suggested that this is why when you check your laundry to see if it is dry, you can't tell the difference between it being damp and being cold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, which I think is quite interesting. It's really interesting. Uh, any others? Echolocation. Echolocation, yeah. This is where animals emit a sound wave that bounces off an object and returns an echo that provides information on the size and distance. Um, it's used by dolphin, whales, and Batman. Uh, and... <laughs> Stupid. Stupid. The other two I've got listed, we have talked about before. Two? Oh, that's embarrassing, oh, isn't it? Oh, magnetoreception. Yeah, magnetoreception. Yes! So this is a sense which allows organisms to, to detect to, to the magnets. Earth's magnetic field. Birds use yeah. this to migrate, of course. This is in episode 22. There's one last one. And you've got to think back to... The very first episode for this. Is this like electroreception? Yeah. Oh, oh. Yes. Oh, I forgot about that. Oh, what a good episode that was. Wow. This is the ability to perceive natural electrical stimuli. Bees do this to find flowers. I talked about it in episode one. So we might not be as capable as some animals when it comes to our senses. But for one last time, let's all close our eyes. Yes, you, even if you're driving, especially oh, if you're driving. Mm, hold on. Uh, Close your eyes, Tom. Uh, can you feel your heart beating? Do you know where your limbs are? Maybe you're a bit hungry right now. Can you smell something nice around you? Can you hear the sultry sound of my voice? <laughs> Is this an ASMR thing again? All of that is thanks <sighs> to your specialised receptors receiving an insane amount of information, an absolutely insane amount of information, and still interpreting that in these really highly specific ways. Wow. Thank you for listening. Wow. And if you're driving, open your eyes. Oh, my God. (laughs) 
Hi, I'm Hal Loveland. And I'm Mark Gagliardi. And we're the hosts of We Got This with Mark and Hal, the weekly show where we settle the debates that are most important to you. That's right. What arguments are you and your friends having that you just can't settle? Apples or oranges? Marvel or DC? Fork versus spoon? Chocolate or vanilla? Best bagel? What's the best Disney song? We Got This with Mark and Hal. Every week on Maximum Fun, we do the arguing so you don't have to. Oh, all answers are final for all people for all time. We got this. So, we're going to be looking at the history of some of the pride flags. Ancient Egypt. Woo. <laughs> <laughs> oh, why, why, why did I laugh? I shouldn't laugh. It's the, it's, 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 it's the easiest joke, but I really wasn't thinking about it this time. <laughs> So we're not going to be looking at how every single group got their pride flag. There's like 20 main pride flags at the moment and probably hundreds of other pride flags for smaller groups and subgroups. So today we're going to look at the rainbow flag and then we're going to look at the L, the G, the B and the T. We're going to look at the lesbian flag, the gay flag, the bisexual flag and the transgender flag. We're not even Amazing. focusing on the non-binary flag, which is my little flag. So, you know, if you're feeling sad about being left out, suck it up. <laughs> there will also be more information in the notes. And I have, a, I have a sneaking suspicion, Caroline, that in learning about these flags, we're also going to learn about the history of these groups? Or oh no, we're just going to learn about the flags. God, you're actually <laughs> just, just, learn. Just, just the shapes of the flags? Just, just the flags. Actually, nothing well, else. Okay, cool, cool, cool. What Caroline's going to do is list the RGP values to each of Guys, and get this. At first, the R value used to be 244, and then it changed to 200, which is amazing. <laughs> it, it's, just, it's just so great. There's so much great progress in, oh the, in, in society these days. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say I think this is going to be a, a fun lens to view this through I feel like uh, through flags yeah. I feel like uh, yeah because yeah. I feel like the thing with the queer community as is the case with so many other communities as there's there's just so much history getting us yeah. to this yeah. point now and it would be physically impossible to probably even <laughs> cover one of those groups in the space that we have here for a podcast so these are like interesting little snapshots of what was going on at the time yeah. that these yeah. things were being made and there are some really interesting stories here and some of them are like heartbreaking and some of them are really funny and it's, it's just it's gonna be a fun little ride so shall we start off with the rainbow flag of course i assume you've both seen the rainbow flag i assume most of the people listening have seen caroline i'm looking at the rainbow flag right, oh, right as we speak because God. on my desk an image which oh, I will I put a link Brooke. to in our Discord, which you can find oh, through yeah. Let's Learn Everything Pod.com. And it is it's a painting that Caroline did for me before we even started this podcast. I, I commissioned it actually because you I pay artists. Um, yeah. <laughs> and it's a tiny little frog sitting on a rainbow flagpole. So Ella, you can tell us what are the colours of the six stripe rainbow flag? They're Rugabiv. Rugabiv is Rugabiv. Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, violet. Yes, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, and purple. Scientifically accurate. Do either of you want to guess what year the original rainbow flag was introduced as a symbol for? The queer community or the LGBTQ plus community? That's a great question. 1972. <gasps> You're so close. Co guess. Complete guess. Tom, do you want to guess? 1969. You no. landed on the moon, baby. So okay. It first debuted in 1978. Nice. Huh. So, so like 
In terms of history that we covered here before, pretty recent, it's often credited to a man named Gilbert Baker, who, after completing his military service, used his artistic talents in his political efforts. He is a man who created a lot of banners for anti-war and pro-gay marches and protests. Mm, mm. Nice. And because he was doing all of this, a lot of people in his life suggested that he should work on creating a new symbol for the gay and lesbian political movement. It is, maybe this is stupid to say, it is very fun because I guess there wasn't <laughs> you know like right. like you talk about the yeah. creation of the flag but then you have to remember the, the time without it which is very yeah, funny totally. yeah totally and we'll talk about some of the iconography that these communities used beforehand yeah of course yeah. I'm sure there was tons uh, of but it yeah is, there was loads of it it is funny to think of a person being like wouldn't this be a cool idea <laughs> right <laughs> and flash like, forward to now and it's like that was a pretty good idea actually I guess I always forget as well that like somebody actually sat down and thought this through and was like this is going to be the design of this flag for this specific movement. And obviously Baker would have had no clue that it would have been as popular as it is. But I just think that's really interesting. So yeah, so a lot of people in his life suggested that he should make some sort of iconography, some sort of imagery to represent this political movement. In another interesting man who is involved in this is a man named Harvey Milk, who mm, yes. also is credited as suggesting that Baker make some sort of design. Have either of you heard of Harvey Milk before? No. no. Yes, I've heard of the the movie about him. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Oh, I'm, I'm is it called Milk? With... Yes. Yes, I've also heard of that movie. Um, but I'm, I gotta be honest, I'm not super familiar with yeah. the history. When I was talking to people at work, some people were like, yes, of course I know Harvey Milk. And some people were like, I, a man named Milk? What are you talking about? <laughs> so... Milk is one of the first openly gay elected officials in the United States. One of. He won a seat on the San Francisco Board of Supervisors in 1977. He served in this seat for 11 months and was incredibly popular whilst he was doing this. He did a lot of things, not just to help out the gay community, but a really big thing that he did was he sponsored a bill banning discrimination in public accommodations, housing and employment on the basis of sexual orientation. Mm. All of the supervisors ended up passing this bill on a vote of 11 to 1. And it got signed into law by the mayor at the time, who was Mayor George Moskin. And we will come back to talking about milk in a second. But basically, he's one of these people who tried to convince Baker into creating some sort of imagery. Also, so recent. So, <laughs> so sad how so recent, recent some of this stuff. Right, yeah. So yeah, 1977. Yeah, we'd been to the moon for eight years. Right, and we were we still... Had a, we had a... <laughs> well, I mean, it was still, like, illegal to, like, yeah. have gay sex at the point he would have been elected, right? So... Uh, Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, really, really cool. So, back to Baker. After being urged by Milk to create a symbol, that's exactly what he did. But he knew that creating any sort of symbol would be really, really difficult because it would be competing with other really famous symbols and iconography Mm -hmm. and imagery that were used before this point. When I'm talking about gay men, can either of you think of anything that they might have used? I happen to know offhand from a TikTok, I saw the, it's the the pink triangle, right? The pink triangle. Oh, I, I know that famously what gay prisoners in Nazi Germany had to wear on their yes. uniforms. Yeah, it's something that is really, really famous. It was used in early, like, by imagery as well. But essentially in Nazi Germany and in other countries that were occupied by the Nazis, people were marked on their clothing with various symbols to indicate who they were. So famously, Jewish people had the Star of David 
on their arm, usually in the form of a band of some sort. Mm-hmm. Gay men were also persecuted and they had a pink triangle. A social women, often lesbian women, had a black triangle on them. So there's loads of really, really famous things. A and social women. A social women or antisocial women sometimes. And yes, antisocial, that's... Um... That's like, you know, when women were told that they had, like, hysteria. Yeah. That kind of... Yeah, it's got that vibe, Classic. Yeah. So, obviously, this imagery is really, really negative, but a lot of people in the queer community thought that it would be best to try and reclaim some of this stuff and make it less negative, and therefore it was really, really famously used, especially from the 1950s onwards. Mm. So, obviously... Mm -hmm. Baker was aware of all of this and understood the symbol's histories. For him personally, the pink triangle still brought back a lot of negative connotations. And actually about designing his own symbol, he said, we needed something beautiful, something from us. So he chose to go with a flag. He saw flags as the most powerful symbol of pride. So when you think of being proud at the time, you might think of being proud of your country. And flags just, they work really well, right? So he later said in an interview, Our job as gay people was to come out, to be visible, to live in the truth, as I say, Mm -hmm. to get out of the lie. A flag really fit that mission because that's Mm -hmm. a way of proclaiming your visibility or saying, this is who I am. Mm-hmm. Which is really lovely. That is another thing I don't think about. Because it, it, again, it just feels it feels so obvious because it's there. But like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, why a flag? Right. And 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 for all of those reasons, it makes it makes perfect sense. And again, to to think that like there was a time without that is very. Mm-hmm. I know it seems obvious in retrospect, but is um not something I had thought about. I guess yeah 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 totally. It's often said that Baker saw the rainbow as a natural flag in quotation marks, from Mm, the sky. mm. So he ended up going with the eight-striped flag. Each of the eight colours had their own specific meaning. So it was hot pink for sex, red for life, orange for healing, yellow for sunlight, green for nature, turquoise for art, indigo for harmony, and violet for spirit. For ultraviolet light. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that, one, that one was just there. They were just like, that's just cool. We should recognize that. Yeah. It's also speculated that this rainbow imagery came from another inspiration, which was the song Over the Rainbow in The Wizard of Oz. Yeah. Okay. Oh. Judy Garland was a gay icon at the time. Yeah. And gay men often referred to themselves as a friend of Dorothy. Yeah. To try mm, and mm. it was a colloquial term meaning gay man, and they used it to try and identify each other um this claim was never confirmed by baker during his lifetime as far as i could find but it's still a really nice thought that there might be multiple Mm. ways that the rainbow came to him so this flag was made and debuted in the united nations plaza in downtown san francisco in june of 1978 that's like such a great way to do that yeah it's so good right and it was actually produced by a team of 30 volunteers who took over like a public laundromat to rinse the dye from the fabrics. These people then cut into the fabrics and sewed them together and they utilised the wide attic space of a gay community centre to lay out and iron the fabric. That's so fucking beautiful. I guess it's so great. I'm like, the idea that they couldn't just... I know, go on Amazon and buy a rainbow flag. I know that's that's such a simplistic viewpoint to have, but I'm like, yo, no, they actually would have had to have made this because why would they have existed? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) 
fucking point. Uh, but but also, what a fucking what a beautiful image of a bunch of people coming together and almost kind of like sneakily to like make this thing to then right? debut it like yeah. that is mm-hmm. such a is uh gives gives betsy ross a fucking run for her money in terms of like flag <laughs> creation imagery that's great it's so cool oh. isn't it um and it's also really nice that so this would have been the version of the pride flag that harvey milk would have seen before his death mm. don't know if you caught on but i said that he only served in his seat as a supervisor for 11 months and that's mm. because himself and mayor moscone the man who put into effect that anti-discrimination bill they were both assassinated on november 27th Shit of 1978 Mm. by a former city supervisor the guy who cast the sole vote against the discrimination bill yeah so the rainbow flag grew in popularity after milk's death because people wanted to use the flag to honor his death and honor him wow yeah after this point this is also when we start losing some of those colors so hot pink was a really difficult dye to find so they just they were like we're gonna cut that out nice like practical yeah no, absolutely I, was say, I love that yeah <laughs> um guys we gotta we got be realistic here <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> um but then the turquoise was also removed for a few reasons including aesthetics and balancing it's especially like, it, for activists to compromise on one thing i'm glad it was the practicality of dyes as opposed to any yeah, of the other things that they were unwavering yeah. on it's really <laughs> funny yeah but yeah because at this point they were starting to not necessarily mass produce the flags but the flags were being produced at a much higher rate than they yeah. were before after milt's death so hot pink had to go turquoise had to go so be it after this point the popularity of the flag steadily increased up until 1994 when a mile long version of the flag ran through the streets of New York City. Ooh. Wow. This was to mark the 25-year anniversary of the 1969 Stonewall riots. How the fuck have I never heard about this? It's so cool. <laughs> How have I never heard about that? Um, That's awesome. There's also this idea that from the inception of the flag in the late 70s, for a good many decades, it would have been to like, display that flag or have it with yeah. you was like oh, you yeah. were putting yourself at huge at amounts huge of risk. risk yeah well and then the evolution to then target merch <laughs> yeah yeah totally starbucks mugs disney badges <laughs> uh, yeah um but i guess at this point like it wouldn't necessarily just be people in the queer community who are exposed to this but yeah. also people from outside of the community possibly yeah, were being yeah, exposed yeah. to it for the first time mm. meaning that this symbol at this point really really got solidified in a lot of people's minds that this was a queer image this was a gay symbol the pride flag is what we're going to use like seeing it and going oh you know what i'm gonna display one of those as well now so after 1994 the flag really exploded in popularity that is also another i keep having these revelations but like the idea that the idea of the flag has to spread and to take right. on yeah. that like people don't like instantly see it and they're like, oh, I know what that means, right? Mm-hmm. Like it has yeah. to, it, and it got, you know, started locally in, in San Francisco and then for it to, to get to New York and to the, again, now to the point where like it is, you know, like has a, a Wikipedia page or yeah. like, like to, to describe what it is canonically. The fact that you have to, it, it starts a, as like a grassroots thing for a small group and then has to become a thing that everyone knows is yeah. really interesting. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. And of course, 
the flag has not remained entirely the same the entire time, as more people have become aware of it. For example, in the height of the AIDS epidemic, some flags were produced with a black stripe on it to honour and memorialise those who Mm. died. More famously, though, are the flags with intersectionality in mind, such as the Philadelphia Pride flag, which was unveiled in 2017. I didn't realise it was that recently. I've had that flag in my head forever. Of course. And it has the colours of the Philadelphia Eagles on, of course. (laughs) That's why. Yeah, that's the intersectionality we mean. It has a a, a Hitchbot's head on it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, it actually has a black and a brown stripe to represent people of colour in the queer community whose voices are often disregarded in light of some serious racism issues within the queer community. Yes. The Progress Pride flag was also made in 2018, and that's the one with the little chevron triangular shaped chevron on the side of it. That was made by Daniel Kazar. That has the trans and the black and brown on, right? It does. It has both. So it's trying to include both trans people within the queer community as well as people of colour. That's pretty cool. And in 2021, the Progress Pride flag also included the intersex symbol, which is the yellow background with a purple circle. This was designed by Valentino Vichitti. So basically, this flag remained pretty much exactly the same for like 40 years. And then a lot of really, really important things happened in society and it changed. And that's a really cool thing. That's a really good thing. And we are currently, I think there's a lot of debate about which flag you should be using just because so many things are changing all of the time. But it's probably going to change again in the next few years. And that's okay. Do you know what I was just about to do? Oh, no. What were I was you about just to do? about to tell you guys some facts about pride emoji flags <laughs> I've learned recently. Until <laughs> um, my brain just went, no. Tom told you. <laughs> I genuinely oh. was like, "Oh God, they'll love this." What? If, what? Oh, oh, that's sweet. Would you like to tell us anyway, Ella? Oh, well, I wouldn't have given. No, go back oh, to it. Go back to our last episode, and Tom explained some stuff about the pride flags emojis. Um, it's quite interesting. And I thought about covering all that milk stuff uh, uh, in oh. my topic also, so I'm glad, and I cut it out. Oh. So I'm really glad that Caroline. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. So, having one flag to include them all <laughs> is amazing. Did you did you mean to make that a Lord of the Rings reference? I did. I did. <laughs> and, and in the darkness, bind all of the gays. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, if I'm talking about pride flags, I can't ignore the fact that so many different subgroups within the queer community have their own flag. Yeah. I've mentioned a few of them already when we're talking about the Progress Pride flag. We mentioned a bunch of them. So the first one that I want to chat about, the first little group is the bisexual because we're the best. Woo! Represent! Let's go! Ella, do you know what one of the early symbols of bi-visibility was, especially in the 80s. No, but you know what? I'm going to guess it was like just pink and blue or something like that to be like two genders. Nailed it! <laughs> so it was created in 1985 and it is in the form of what I would, I'm going to lovingly call the bi-angles. <laughs> I, I think that might actually be its name. It's just what I'm going to call it. sorry. You're, you're, I, I, I apologize to correct you, but you're thinking of bionicles. Oh my god. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. 
We just need a second. It's fine. We'll fix it in the edit. We can get that. Created by Liz Nania. The biangles are two triangles. They are blue and pink. And they overlap. And that overlapping section is purple. Okay. Yeah. I see it. It's cute. It's not like dissimilar to what it is now, I guess. It's really, really similar. And actually, this one does not evolve a whole lot. Oh, but I assume... I'm looking at it now. I assume it's evolving from the the triangle imagery that we talked about earlier. Yeah, exactly. So it came being inspired by the pink triangles. The colors of the overlapping triangles represent an attraction to both or all sexes. I mean, back in this, when did you say? 1985. So, I mean, they probably meant both then. But now we mean all. They (laughs) would have meant both then. We now mean all. We don't do transphobia here in the bi community. But yeah, so it's symbolized by the pink and the blue. And that purpley color or that lavender lavendery cover yeah, color. Yeah, yeah, that's hard to say. But that represents the queerness of bisexuality. And actually, one really interesting thing that it references is the lavender menaces, which I'm going to talk about a little bit. What? This purple color and lavender and violet, especially in like the 1970s and 1980s, was a color that was often associated with queerness, in this case, bisexuality, but also with lesbianism. It is a colour that was really, really heavily related with them. So the relation goes back as far as Sappho mentioning beautiful women wearing violet tiaras Mm. in the 1920s (laughs) when women would give each other violets to indicate their intentions and things Mm -hmm. like that. So it was often given to other queer women. And in 1969, the president in the National Organisation for Women claimed that lesbians specifically were hurting the feminist cause by being this man-hating group that could lead to feminism being dismissed. Nice. And in this speech, referred to lesbians as lavender menaces. Yes. Yes. Really? It's so good. That's so... The best thing in the world is when someone insults you and then you realise and then... And they give you like a cool villain name. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 (laughs) They're like, no! So yeah, obviously lesbians adopted this phrase and called themselves the Lavender Menaces. Why would you not? That's so good. Right. Um, And this was especially prevalent during this political movement in the 1970s and 80s. And there are some fantastic photos of women with homemade t-shirts on just saying Lavender Menace across the front of it. It's so good. I love it so much. We have this buy symbol. It's pretty popular. It was used for things like pins and stuff and patches. And actually, a lot of that original design translated through to the buy flag that was created in 1998. So that rainbow flag was brought into the public consciousness in 1994. And a lot of other groups decided that they probably needed their own flags as well. So the bi flag, as we know it, has remained pretty much unchanged since 1998, but it was invented by a man named Michael Page. It was released in a queer magazine, which is how it started to Mm. gain popularity, which is really, really cool. Obviously, the colours have remained the same, but they represent slightly different things. The pink colour represents sexual attraction to the same sex. The blue represents sexual attraction to the opposite sex. And the overlap represents sexual attraction to both sex. Or all sexes. All sexes. Absolutely. So that is how we got the bi flag. Again, it has remained unchanged since then. One year later, the trans flag was also 
created. Oh, really? That's quite early. So they all started happening really, really around the same sort of time. Given the vitriol. Yes. Yeah. Given where we are now. So yeah, in 1999, the transgender pride flag was created. It was created by a woman named Monica Helms and was first displayed in the year 2000 in Phoenix, Arizona at an LGBT pride celebration. Again, the original design has not changed very much. And actually, the original flag that Helms designed could be found in the Smithsonian in Washington, which is pretty no cool. No way! Yeah. That's yeah. cool that they um, consider that... I mean, obviously, they should consider it an integral yeah. part of history, but I feel like some people would... Some bad actors would say that that shouldn't be the kind of thing they're collecting. But of course it is. Of course it's... Of course it is. It's part of history, yeah. Uh, there are also alternatives to the transgender flag that we are aware of now. Different parts of the world use different flags, hey, but these flags are pretty universal for the most yeah. part. I am going to move on now to the first lesbian flag, because the lesbians have their flag journey has been an interesting one. Oh boy. Do you two know what the lesbian flag that we currently use looks like? Yeah, it's there's like seven rows. Yeah. And it's like a gradation of oranges, a white yeah. in the middle, oh, and a gradation yes, yes, yes. of, of pinks. Uh-huh. Yes. So you've got the image of this flag, you're visualising yeah. it, you have a yes. skill that I don't have in visualisation. I'm going to send you <laughs> the flag that was created in 1999. So this is going to be on Discord. I just wanted to say in like Times New Roman, lesbian <laughs> across <laughs> it. <laughs> Okay, here we go. Oh my oh, god, that's yeah. so good. <laughs> that's slaps. That's Who like to describe this one. That's metal as fuck, man. Okay, so it's a purple background. <laughs> it's got an, an upside down black triangle on it, which mm-hmm. I assume is to for the antisocial women. Yes, um, yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. And then it also has um in the middle of the the upside down black triangle, it has a white double-headed axe. <laughs> it's so good, isn't it? <laughs> It's fucking, that's metal. Why did they change it? That's so much better than the current one. We'll get into why they changed (laughs) it. I mean, okay, I guess the the symbolism of the triangle is like very, that's a lot. So I understand why they changed that. But the axe... Badass. <laughs> sick, right? So we'll talk about the sick first. It's called a. Some people refer to it as a labrys. So I'm going to refer labrys, to it as a labrys. That okay. um, is a double-headed axe, and I think where this mostly comes from is because apparently it was the weapon of choice for Amazons in Greek mythology, and was a symbol of empowerment <laughs> for lesbians in the 1970s. So they just adopted it wow. into their flag. Isn't it so cool? Yes. A lot of people don't even realise that this was a flag option for lesbians. The thing is, this flag was created by a man. So it's already not a great start. God damn it. Unfortunately as well, this flag has been taken on by TERFs. Can I really explain what a TERF is? Does anybody know what that word means? Uh, A TERF is a trans-exclusionary radical feminist. It's just someone who doesn't include the T in yeah. LGBT. Fuck you, TERFs. Fuck the TERFs. And fuck the TERFs for making this flag inaccessible because it's fucking oh. sick. And you don't deserve that flag. And no, you don't deserve that. You don't deserve to be referred to as the Lavender Menaces. Hey folks, quick editor's note here. Uh, we found that some people are trying to reclaim the Labras flag and the Labras symbol from TERFs. Uh, so seeing one doesn't necessarily outright mean that that person is a turf. I uh, just want to let you know. All right, back to the episode. 
So this flag was made in 1999, but it didn't really get used. It wasn't really adopted by the whole community. So the next flag that I'm gonna show you guys is much more similar to the one that we recognize. So I'm gonna send that over to you. <laughs> Tom! <laughs> It's the same colour scheme. Ish, yeah, kind of. Well, very similar. It's the seven rows, a gradation of pink, a gradation of kind of pink and orange, and then one white stripe in the middle. Yeah, but there's something on it, Ella, also. Do we want to really highlight the elephant in the room with this flag? Yeah, so there's a giant pair of lips yes. on it, like a lipstick mark, uh -huh. which I have to assume refers to being a lipstick lesbian. It does refer to being a lipstick lesbian. Would you like to show the group what that means? No, you should. Okay. <laughs> So lipstick lesbians are a subgroup of lesbians who, in the simplest of times, are traditionally more feminine. This flag was created yeah. in 2010, and it was first published to a blog. And I want to read the blog post that went along with this, because it's fucking Is this going to be like a Brian Wansink kind of blog post? Facebook, Game of Thrones, <laughs> <laughs> everyone is distracted lesbians. from being a lesbian. <laughs> it's pretty good. So, the creator says, the gay community has so many flags that represent all the different sub-communities. Our gay male friends are definitely the most established. They have a flag for young gays, leather gays, hairy gays, and girly yeah. gays. Even the bisexuals have their own flag. Even. Yeah. Even. <laughs> so I always wondered, where are the lesbian flags? Are we lacking pride? Or is our community just too lazy to come up with something? Wow. I've taken it upon myself to design the very first lipstick lesbian pride flag. Now we have our own flag to wave at the gay parade. That just really tickled me when I read it. I was like, wow, okay, harsh. So you've seen the colours. It's seven shades ranging from pink to pink. And of course, there's this huge lipstick mark because it's the lipstick lesbian flag. Yay. In 2016, this flag was circulating again, but without the lipstick mark. It was essentially uploaded. This, this part also really tickled me. Oh, boy. Um, the person that uploaded it couldn't be bothered to redraw a high-resolution vector for the lips. Oh, so they just uploaded nice. it without the lips. And we're like, Good. Yeah, that'll fine, do. <laughs> and now that's basically the lesbian yeah, flag. Yeah, so that got adopted. People just started claiming that it was the lesbian flag and saying, this is so pretty. Why don't we use it? I'm sorry. Wait, 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 wait. Is this yeah. the... This is the origin of the... The current lesbian flag. The, is yeah. this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this with the lipstick on it? Yeah. Oh, uh -huh. I thought... I'm yeah. sorry. I thought, I thought that there was a flag for it and then this person put the lipstick on it. No, this came first. Okay, you're saying yeah. this person <laughs> went on this tirade, made this, some internet person was like, I can't fucking be bothered. In, uh -huh. in the same way that the original uh, rainbow flag lost its colors because it was too difficult. Yeah. This is the modern yeah. equivalent of that. <laughs> and then that's that's the flag that I now know is, is, is from that process. Yeah. That's amazing. Isn't that's so great. <laughs> Yeah, so basically during like 2016, a lot of people were like, we don't have a lesbian flag. We're just going to circulate this one as, a, as the flag. There are a lot of people being like, are we circulating this one as the flag? Like, when did we all decide this was happening? Mm -hmm. When did we all decide? Like, the Council of Lesbians didn't get together. There was a vote. Did you not yeah, see? Just, yeah, just like all voted on this. <laughs> when, it, when is anything ever decided on in this yeah. kind of thing? Yeah. I mean, as, as we've clearly shown from all the other flags, it's just like, yeah. it just 
just kind of happens. The issue is with this flag in this specific format being those very pinky tones. This is referred to as the pink flag. And the person who created the lipstick flag as well, they were shown to be biphobic, racist, possibly transphobic, definitely mean to butch lesbians. They said some pretty terrible things on various Uh online forums. The fact that when there was no lesbian flag before this, or or rather there wasn't one that was very widely used, Mm -hmm. instead of coming up with a general lesbian flag, just for my type of lesbian, the one I think is okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly that. That's very interesting. Yeah. Um, it's, I'm surprised that, given this history, that there hasn't been a, a movement to try and replace the lesbian flag, because this is what it is now. So this is very similar, but it has changed slightly. I should say that there is still no official lesbian flag. It's just that the flag that we have has been adopted by a lot of people and in a lot of merchandise and things like that. So I think it's on its way to becoming the official lesbian flag. I will send you a photo of the current lesbian flag just so you can really see the differences between the two. Yeah, I'm looking at it now. I think they're, they're different. Yeah. So the way that we got the current flag in 2018, this is referred to as the sunset flag was made. Is it really only 2018? Yeah, only 2018. Mm-hmm. And it was made by combining the lipstick lesbian flag or the pink flag with, there were a lot of flags made specifically for butch lesbians. And they took right. some of the okay. color scheme from that flag and combined it with the pink flag to get the sunset flag. That's that nicer. So yeah, so that is how we ended up with the sunset flag that we, currently have there's a lot more like little bits to this there's a really great video by strange eons on the topic if anybody wants to go and watch that it will be in the strange eons also did a really good video about the authors of the classic fan fiction my immortal yeah so if you, if you yeah, want to yeah, go yeah. watch that <laughs> if you want a good time uh go and check Should that suggest out. them to that uh 100 replications idea it sounds like they'd be they could be the first <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to talk about why we have so many flags and why Mm. some people think it's important to have all of these different flags. Mm. So obviously the rainbow flag has many, many iterations. It's amazing, but it doesn't necessarily represent everybody. Many groups have felt excluded from the LGBTQ plus community either through racism, transphobia, sexism, biphobia, etc. There's so much bigotry going on in the community. And each group having their own flag may allow them to still feel included in some sort of community. Oh yeah. Historian Benedict Anderson says that flags as symbols facilitate sociality between strangers, inviting community with people who may never actually meet. And other people say things like shared symbols can interpolate people into a collective sense of community. Which is really, really lovely. Yeah, I think there's something really powerful about seeing a flag at your local library or like the bar that you go to or like the bike shop you go to, you know? And this whole topic has really, um, you know, I think what we were kind of mentioning before about the fact that this has been co-opted by companies, the Mm, rainbow flag mm -hmm. especially, can really disenfranchise you with the flag. But like hearing the history of it really like, makes me appreciate it right? a lot more and and like kind of makes me feel like a lot more of a connection to it as a queer person yeah absolutely so thank you yeah. <laughs> obviously not everybody loves all of the flags and i found a really no. lovely quote from the atlantic from a person called valentine amari who said i'm between not everything needs a flag and this was my favorite part of the quote flags in resistance to capitalist cis heteropatriarchy and white supremacy are useful and powerful to the people waving them 
Yeah. Fucking incredible. So yeah, wanting to feel seen is massively important within the community. And I also feel like not wanting to feel alone can be really, really important for a lot of people in the queer community. Yeah. 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 Which is why there are so many different labels as well. If you're feeling a certain way and you find a label for it and a flag for it can be massively reassuring that you're not alone in whatever you're going through and whatever you're feeling and that's really really powerful so there's still a long way to go for inclusivity and intersectionality within the queer community and of course the use of these symbols by big brands is a whole other kettle of fish but if they're useful to the people that are waving them then that's all that really matters what oh no i was gonna do the same joke i did last time um, do it. Commit, let's, go. <laughs> let's go. Yeah, I had forgotten it. Uh, what time is it? Review oh, corner yep, time. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Okay. Beautiful. But this time, do the whole song. <laughs> We're all one and singing with our. No, that's the wrong song. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> We're breaking free. We're reviewing. <laughs> Corners. <laughs> There's not a five stars in, in Apple Podcasts. That we can reach. reach. Wait, guys. Oh, <laughs> oh, we struck gold. If anybody wants to turn that into a song, don't. Well, you know who has struck gold is Giddy Brick on Apple Podcasts, and they say <laughs> suspiciously great. Oh, this this. <laughs> Group dynamic is absolutely infectiously cheery and wholesome as they learn about things they like. It's actually suspicious how much they like learning and educating each other about anything and everything. I thought it was a forced facade of camaraderie, but after a few episodes, yep, I think they really do have a joy in learning. You think I would choose to spend time with Tom if I had to? You think we would do this every other week if we (laughs) did? No, of course. It's great to learn happily, vicariously through their conversations, like listening to your friends gush about cool things they like with you. I love, ah, thank you so much. I love that when the reviews mention them, it just sounds like we're friends talking. Wait, first of all, we are. (laughs) But that's such a nice thing to hear. And like, some of y'all are so insightful. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, wait, that is true. Also, suspiciously great. Suspiciously great. We've been been planted by big podcast (laughs) (laughs) industry plants. We were actually bred in a super pod lab. Wow. Y'all have any plugs or shout outs? Let's learn everything pod.com. That's That's where we all are. All of our socials are there. Oh, you know what? I want to shout out for my good friend Caroline, the non-binary flag, which is yellow, white, purple, and black in that well order. <laughs> did you just pull up a photo of it? I did. Ah, oh, I love that from you. <laughs> <laughs> so today we learned about the replication crisis, the nuances, and the things we're doing to fix it. Mm. We learned that we have so many interesting senses, both inside and out. I'm going to be thinking about them for days. And we learned about the long history of the queer community that we can learn from the various flags. And you can join us all next time where we will learn about (gasps) everything. Let's Learn Everything is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted and produced by Ella Hubber, Tom Lunn and Caroline Roper with editing and music by the wonderful and talented Tom Lunn.
stop on Oh no! I can go for actually for quite a lot longer, so I'm going to stop for the sake of time. <laughs> MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.